Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. I hope you're doing all right wherever you happen to be. Thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube, follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. Today, my guest is Rebecca Bergman, author of the debut novel, The Museum of Human History. I, I love a book that's set in a world that's like just a shade different from our own, and it's not even clear if it's a future or just like an alternate timeline, because I just think it gives the writer a lot of room to build. And I love when it feels analogous to the world that we do live in. So the fact that you thought maybe it was real is really uh, delightful to me. <laughs> All right, that was Rebecca Bergman. Her debut novel is called The Museum of Human History. It is available from Tin House, and it is the official August pick of the Other People Book Club. The Museum of Human History is a wonderful novel, complex, philosophically searching. It is, among other things, about a young girl, eight years old, who nearly drowns and then falls into a strange comatose state where she can breathe on her own, but she is not physically aging somehow. This is a haunting, propulsive, mysterious novel. It is beautifully structured and it features a wide cast of characters who find themselves pulled toward this young girl. Her name is Maeve and these characters believe that her mysterious sleep, this mysterious comatose state that she is in somehow holds the answers to their life's most pressing questions. The world that this novel takes place in is what I would refer to as sort of earth adjacent. <laughs> it feels real, it feels contemporary or even slightly futuristic, but 
In fact, the settings in the book are wholly invented. I should also add that in the world of this novel, there is a mysterious new drug available that promises to halt the aging process in human beings, but instead causes devastating side effects. I had a wonderful talk with Rebecca Bergman about the Museum of Human History. That is coming up in just a couple of minutes. Before we get started, a quick reminder to please join the Other People Patreon community if you so desire and help keep this show going into the future. You can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. It's a sliding scale. It's easy. It's user-friendly. You can get merchandise. And if you love this show, it's a great way to show your support. Likewise, if you would like to sign up for my free once-a-week email newsletter, you can do that at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. And uh, the newsletter is easy, too. It's friendly. It's user-friendly. It's friendly. It's a very friendly newsletter. <laughs> it, uh, it just features a reminder each week from me about the latest episodes of the show. I let you know who the guests are, and I also share some links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if you would like to hear from me in your inbox once a week, go sign up for the newsletter at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. All right, so today on the program, my guest is Rebecca Bergman. Her debut novel, The Museum of Human History, is available now from Tin House. It is the official August pick of the Other People Book Club. Rebecca Bergman received her BA in Literary Arts from Brown University and then went on to get her MFA at the New School. Her short stories have been published in Tin House Online, Joyland, and other journals. She is a contributing editor at Noon Literary Journal, and she lives in Rhode Island. I had such a good time meeting and talking with Rebecca about her wonderful debut novel, and I'm excited to share our conversation with all of you right now. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Rebecca Bergman, and her debut novel, One More Time, is called The Museum of Human History. So I was born and lived until I was 11 in Worcester, Massachusetts, which is a, a city right in the middle, basically, of, of Massachusetts. Kind of a strange place. And I had then, my college roommate, I want to say for a time, his family lived in Worcester. And it's mm -hmm. spelled like Worcester. It is, yes. Yeah. yeah. And then I moved to a town called Swampscott, which is a very small town on the north shore of Massachusetts, right on the ocean. And I think both locations are kind of like, uh, have, have a... A way in which that they're in the book, yeah. Okay, yeah. Because the setting of the book is not quite real. It's mm -hmm. not, it, like, these are fictionalized places. Mm -hmm, very much. But, but based on maybe the places that you just described, especially the coastal place. Yes. Swampscott. Mm-hmm. So wait, and what's the, forgive my lack of uh, geographical knowledge, the north shore of Massachusetts, is that up near Rhode Island? Like, what borders it? Uh, no, so it's it's um, New Hampshire. What yeah, is it? Uh, you know, far up north. Yeah, New Hampshire. But we were like fifteen. My mom still lives there. Fifteen miles north of Boston, Salem is right there. Gloucester, like those sort of like not the Cape, which is the part of Massachusetts that juts out in the south, but 
but the northern coast, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. I, I was thinking when you said north, I thought you meant like way north, like toward the border or something, but it's well, just north of Boston. Massachusetts isn't very big either. That's but, right, yeah. that's right. So, and I read that you as a child had some awareness of like a girl in your town, and I don't know if this was Worcester or Swampscott. Mm-hmm. Who, this is Worcester. Okay, so in Worcester there was a girl who had fallen into a coma and who was said to be able to like perform miracles or produce miracles like in her presence and this knowing this you know the element the Maeve character of your book and the way that she falls into this like almost like fairy tale like sleep you know Mm -hmm. she's in a coma but she can breathe on her own and she isn't aging uh which is magical but there is, I didn't, you know, I didn't realize until after I had finished the book that there is a, like a real life experience that informed this. Did you know this girl? No, I didn't know her. And even as it was happening, it was just one of those strange things in childhood where I did, I still didn't even really know what was happening, but like 60 Minutes came to town and it was, it was down the street from where I lived. I had a classmate who lived on her block um, and people were kind of just swarming in and they they were like lining up on the lawn and they would claim that they were cured of their ailments and it was a, a kind of a sensation so it was, was it a christian thing it was a very catholic home and the other thing is i was raised in a very jewish home so i felt like i had almost no way to fully understand what was going on except for that like our uncle called and he was like i just saw your city on 60 minutes and there's this strange thing happening Okay, so what kind of miracles? Like people would show up and they would just get healed? Mostly it was healing. Well, I think it was the, there were kind of two things. The like statues and the paintings in the house were said to be crying and like bleeding. And there was like this holy oil that was coming out of like the garage. So there were these sort of miracles of the home just in her presence. Um, And then people who came would be healed. I think there was someone who said she was healed of cancer. There was a lot of chronic pain. What happened to this girl? How did she feel? She was in a coma at home? Yeah, she was brought home. She it was it was um it wasn't a coma. It was like a comatose state, which is kind of what they say is like a I don't know, an umbrella term, I think maybe. But what ended up happening, she she was in her coma for decades. There was a an anniversary of the accident that had put her in a coma where they brought her to like like a football stadium and it was jam packed and there was a you know there was like a petition to make her a saint and that I don't think that that went anywhere but um she lived they brought it wait they brought her to a football stadium yeah that's the most American thing I've ever heard I know it might it it could have been an auditorium but either way it was like a true spectacle people doing the wave yeah (laughs) um and then at some point in her, I think, early 20s, she developed an pneumonia, which is, is pretty common for people who are fed by feeding tube, and she ended up passing away. So it was a strange, mysterious story that I'd never really understood, and ultimately like a really sad one that just it just feels like this girl became something to a, a group of people, but you know, didn't really have a say over what was sort of what she became. Um, so I tried to write that story, and I just quickly was like, I don't think I... I don't think I want to write this as her story because it's not it's not the story that I I don't even know enough to really tell it straight as it was and it I don't want to be involved in like further exploiting this family and this ultimately child whose life, you know, this this actually is and so I tried not to write it anymore and I tried to write something else and that 
ultimately became the novel that I wrote, but um, I think it still kind of worked its way in there. That seems like a fairly common story for the way that novels come to be. Mm -hmm. There's usually like an iteration of it that's a failure, but that like informs the one that actually works. Yeah, it was funny. The first piece of the, the actual novel that I wrote was meant to be like, well, we're not doing that anymore. So let me just go back and write a short story again. And then the short story I thought I was writing became a, a chapter and <laughs> novel. I kind of like worked my way into a circle and ended up back where I, where I began. What it was Abe and was it the Abe and Sill storyline that was the, is this what you're describing? Yeah. Okay. So that, I think I read this and it surprised me because it's a meaningful storyline in the book, but it's not the central storyline. Yeah. So you just came in at this thing from an odd angle and that's what got you started. Yeah, I think so. And it's funny because Maeve doesn't even appear in that storyline really at all. And like the Abe and Syl together portion, but Syl works in a news in a newsroom as a producer. And I had all these people who came through, even in the initial draft of that story, they, that came through her newsroom and were being interviewed. And those other people became the other characters in the novel. So I feel like she was a good point to begin because she led me to everybody else. But yeah, she, she's not the center of the story, though she is the beginning for me. Okay. And we'll, get, we'll continue you know, to unpack the way that this thing is structured, because it is a really elegantly structured novel. Mm. But I do want to ask you before we go any further, where you land on miracles. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like whenever mm -hmm. someone's like, oh yeah, the paintings were bleeding. I'm just like, I'm so skeptical. I'm just, you know, and yet I'm open. I'm like, okay, maybe so. But this shit never happens to me. Like I've never seen a painting bleed. I've never been healed of my back pain. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, but may maybe you've had experiences. Like what is your take? Um, I think miracles are a lot about collect, like collective hope. And if you, you know, when you want something bad enough, uh, sometimes it's like desire, the desire for it kind of manifests outside of yourself. Even, I don't know, you're not the first person to ask me if I believe in miracles. And I don't want to say that I don't because a miracle could happen to me. But I think a lot of the time, what interests me in them, at least as a writer is like, it's, it's a, it's kind of a story that we're telling ourselves and believing in to the point that like, maybe we've made it real. We believe in that story so much. Yeah. yeah. There's yeah. Well, I just saw something on 60 minutes because I'm an old man who still watches 60 minutes every <laughs> Sunday, but I just saw something on 60 minutes where they went to this, what's it called? It's called Lourdes in France. Mm -hmm. You know, this famous holy site and I think it's Catholic or it's Christian somehow, but people show up and there's like a, a grotto, I think, where there's, you know, the Virgin Mary, it's known to be like miracle producing and like millions of people. I had no idea. This is how little I know about the world. But I was like, oh my God, like there are people making pilgrimages to this thing in massive numbers, 365 days a year. And of course, there are these documented healings. There's a nun who I want to say had like some she was wearing leg braces and could barely walk and now she's like elderly and she's fine and she attributes mm -hmm. she attributes it to this you know virgin mary miraculous healing okay all right like i'm willing to say this is unexplainable it's unexplainable how do you explain this like crazy something happened i don't know what nobody really knows what but here's where <laughs> here's where i get angry you got millions of people showing up 
people with like sick children. Yeah. They're not getting the miracle. Like what kind of twisted God is this? <laughs> you know, like doling out like six of these while like all these other people show up. It just makes me angry at a certain point. I'm like, okay, I'm out. Yeah. You can keep your miracle. There's a kid with cancer here. Like hook him up. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't know. You know, that's kind of where I land on it. Yeah. I think I think it's like something unexplained, unexplicable happened is, is where I land on it too. And it's the next step that some people take of like, and I'm going to explain it in this story that I'm going to sort of tell about it, which will be the miracle that we can all believe in. And then, yeah, line up and line up to receive that same inexplicable thing is also sort of where I, <laughs> where well, I land. <laughs> and we should say too, that the church and the, the holy people in Lourdes do have a financial incentive yeah. to uh, propagate this myth or to, you know, keep this thing rolling as a possibility because, you know, the millions of people are showing up. I'm sure they're leaving, like, money in the little donation basket, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't mean to be cynical about it, but, you know, I need to see some bleeding paintings soon. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm going to be sold on this shit. <laughs> so anyway, that's interesting. And, you know, the other thing... I want to say about this girl in Worcester, you know, is the way that like traumatic experiences, whether they happen in our immediate sphere or they happen, uh, you know, at a, at a remove, but still close enough to be felt. Those things really do mark us. I feel the same way. You know, there were things that happened to people. Like I remember a boy drowned in my town when I was growing up. He had been out at the creek and had gone under and it just haunted me. I didn't know this kid, but I remember it in the paper and it was like, oh my God, like a boy, like my age, Mm -hmm. you know, he had drowned. And, um, you know, then there was a murder, a girl had been murdered. She was like riding her bike home and some, you know, some psycho had, uh, you know, grabbed her basically and beat her to death. So Uh. it's just like, yeah. So, you know, like a... I think everybody has some version of this if you've lived long enough, right? You go through childhood, you're going to be witness to something, whether directly or indirectly. And yet, I would imagine most of us, maybe especially writerly, like sensitive writerly people, really carry these things. And it doesn't surprise me that it worked its way into your fiction. Yeah, I think being a young child, a young girl, and knowing that there was this other young girl just like down, you know, a few blocks down, and that this this story that I couldn't make any sense of because I was too young to fully understand it, and maybe it also doesn't make much sense in a logical way, like definitely was something I carried with me uh, growing up. I didn't, I like didn't think of her for years and years, and then suddenly I was trying to write a book about her, so. Um, well, I mean, she's in there somewhere. Yeah. Do you know, I mean, do you have a sense of why with the benefit of hindsight? You know what I'm saying? Like maybe it was just like some sort of union between creative impulse and like memory. But is there more to it that you can ascertain? I don't know. I think probably there is, but I can't put my finger on on why. I think I think probably just the fact that I was such a young girl and this and what what happened to her to put her in a coma was a, a near drowning accident in her backyard. Like it's just such a sort of like family tragedy you know it was the pool in her backyard and then to have become this national story and you know 60 minutes was coming with her cameras to town and 
people who didn't live in the city were calling us because they'd heard about it. It just was a strange thing for people to know about the little town where I grew up. Do you, uh, did you, have you seen the 60 Minutes piece? I never have. I've read a lot about it. Yeah. Who would, do you know who the uh, correspondent was who came to town? Was it like Morley, Morley Safer? (laughs) Yeah. This would have been like 90, 98 or so. Yeah. Could have been Morley. Mike Wallace and his Mm -hmm. like, you know, his golden years, but Anyway, it's, uh, it's sad, this book of yours. There is a melancholy running through it, and it's also got this like mystery element running through it. So it's, pro- it's propulsive, it's kind of eerie. Like there's something sort of like, it's haunting. Mm. And other aspects of it, I mean, like we should give listeners who haven't had a chance to read like kind of a broad strokes overview. How do you describe this book? This is... <laughs> This is a tough one to put into like a nutshell, right? Yeah, it is. Um, I've, I've, I have some practice with it now. So uh, what I usually say is it's about uh, a young girl who falls into a coma uh, or a strange comatose state and she stops getting physically older. And it's also about all the people or maybe even more so about all the people who find themselves drawn to her for different reasons. And it's a futuristic fairy tale and it's a lot about memory and it's a lot about time. And, I usually and, it's, a lot of, it and it's a lot about people wanting to halt the aging process Mm -hmm. i guess that has to do with time you know Mm -hmm. Uh, but that is a feature of this plot there is a scientific quote-unquote breakthrough and a drug called what is it called prosintus prosintus yeah yeah prosintus which you take it and you you it's like pressing pause on the physical aging you don't like you don't age in reverse like benjamin button or something but you do pause wherever you are yeah and I mentioned it earlier, I suppose now is as good a time as any to talk about the structure of this novel, because I know from having read up on you a little bit that you started out writing short stories yep. as a fiction writer. Mm-hmm. And then this book, as you mentioned earlier, was begun as a kind of surrender to the failed novel about the girl in Worcester. And you're like, okay, fuck it. I'm just going to write like a short story, just try to like cleanse my palate <laughs> or like just do something that I know how to do. Right. Mm-hmm. But then that short story eventually became this novel and a lot of the chapters read as kind of standalone they have that effect anyway you're entering different worlds different characters all their all of their worlds intersect one way or another but i think i read it uh i read a description of the plot structure is that it's like a series of concentric circles Mm -hmm. that sort of made some sense to me but i'm curious to know how you conceived of it yeah, so what you just described is is exactly right. I kind of gave up on writing a novel and instead was cleansing my palate and wanted to go back to short stories. And then had this strange experience that I've never had before of wanting to keep living in the short story that I wrote. So my first... <laughs> Usually just, you're like, I just want to get out of here. <laughs> yeah, well, sometimes my short stories would be like 500 words. Like it was, there was never enough space to really like put down roots and keep going and... This one felt like there was room for that. And so then I thought I was writing linked stories. And so the first pass at this book was really a collection of linked stories that midway through maybe I started calling a novel and stories. I kept kind of giving myself outs of why I wasn't writing a novel. And then once I finished a first draft and really looked at the thing, it felt like, and it got some feedback from other other people whose opinions I, I trusted, that the the even though conceived of as standalone pieces, there was sort of this uh, hole that things were moving toward that was maybe 
meant to be greater than the sum of its parts. So not not a novel in stories, not linked stories, but a novel. <laughs> um, okay, so but like let's let's try to drill down a little bit. Like yeah. taking it from this draft that feels more like a novel in stories or linked stories to making it cohere as a novel, which it most certainly does. Like what needed to be done? A lot. I think the the mystery and hearing you call it propulsive was like making that true was the work for a long time, for years, for several drafts of just knowing how to keep a reader not just interested in the story, but in the broader arc and what what clues to give when, what questions to ask, how many answers to give even, like total. Not everything, not every question gets an answer in this book, but it needed to be satisfying enough to like piece together towards that central arc and, and create a structure that was a novel. I, th- I think it's an easy novel to lose a reader in. Mm-hmm. Like an easy plot, because there's so many different plots happening and so many different characters to keep track of, and you're spanning so much time. Like this is an ambitious undertaking. <laughs> You've given yourself quite a lot of work, and yet I stayed with it. And if I could stay with it, you're in good shape. <laughs> yeah, because I'm so easily lost. I was like, oh, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm still here. I'm still with it. I got it, you know. And so that is a credit to you as a writer, is keeping the reader oriented. And I also felt like the reveals that happen at certain junctures throughout the book were pretty expertly done. Like it was like, Mm -hmm. oh, you get these epiphanies just when you need them and they sort of propel you on to the next. And I can imagine that that was a process, arriving at those moments and understanding what needed to happen in them. Yeah, and understanding where those moments of true revelation were. And then there's some that are almost like Easter eggs of like, for the reader who's closely paying attention, you know, there's some smaller moments of pieces fitting together, but making sure that the, the major ones really did for any kind of reader, that that was important to me. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty, And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, so I, I probably missed a bunch of the Easter eggs, but I, <laughs> I do think I saw like the, the Siegler 
mm-hmm. pharmaceutical family. I could not help but notice the similarity to the Sackler pharmaceutical family mm-hmm. of our present day existence. You know, they're the who are they? The fentanyl people? They mm-hmm. or like the opiate Opioid, people? Yeah. Yeah. So they've you know essentially killed millions of people with their yeah. products, and so that has to be that has to be like a slight dig at the Sacklers, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. And uh, questions that I, that arose for me as I was reading this book. This is a kind of sciency book, mm-hmm. which is not all that common among writers of literary fiction. Occasionally, you'll have somebody who has like this kind of crossover knowledge. But I'm curious to know if you have any educational or professional background in science, the natural sciences, or in pharmaceuticals. Yeah, I, I don't, but I do have like a layperson's interest in all of those things. So my dad is an infectious disease doctor and, you know, growing up we would have like Journal of American Medicine. I was thinking about this recently, like on the breakfast table with like some truly disgusting images while just like eating my waffles or whatever. But, and sometimes my sisters and I would like yell at him to take it out of the kitchen because it was so gross. But I think we were also kind of captivated the way like little kids are by things, things that are gross are also really interesting. I was always, I never had any illusion of myself going into the sciences because I knew I just wanted to be a writer since I was a kid. And even if I tried to get away from it, I kept kind of going back to literature and writing. But um, in college, I did take a lot. I, I went to Brown and the curriculum was super like open and you could take any class. And so I did end up kind of like dabbling in a lot of different science classes that either I took pass-fail because they let me do that, or I um, shopped during what's called the shopping period just to like get a taste of it and then left behind. And then in my non-writing professional life, I work in curriculum development at an education technology company. And when I started this book, I was like researching different videos that we were making, and a lot of them, I think I self-selected to be the the researcher on a lot of um like plate tectonics and like earth's history and uh, just geology stuff that I was kind of really interested in and kind of found a way for my research for work to also become research for the novel in that way, which Beautiful. was, which was great. Yeah. Um, so getting paid to work on your book. It's unheard of. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's ingenious. Mm-hmm. So if you, and you're, you know, uh, aware of your writerly ambition from a young age, I'm always curious how writers form. You say your dad's a doctor. Do you have any artistic, is your mom a writerly person or do you have any like artistic genealogy? Uh, My mom's a musician and she did a lot of like musical theater stuff uh, when I was a kid. And my dad also has, I think he grew up always knowing he would be a doctor, but also has always had like a, like a writerly urge himself. So he's, he was big into plays for a time I know in college. So yeah, I feel like that Renaissance makes, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but my mom my mom was the big like artistic influence definitely with, with music more so. What does she play? Does she play an instrument and Yeah, piano. Oh wow. Jesus. Do you play? I don't and I think writing was I tried and I just don't have any musical talent really at all, but I think writing was my answer to that because I couldn't I couldn't do what my mom did, but I did really like books. So I can't help but notice like there's a lot of griefy energy in this book and a lot of death in this book and a kind of like not clinical but unflinching you know i'm thinking of the test character she's dying of cancer mm-hmm. 
the physical manifestations of her late stage cancer or something you're describing in detail. Then there's obviously like a girl drowns in a pool and mm -hmm. goes into a coma and her, you know, she's just kind of lying there being tended to and you have to deal with like the bed sores issue mm -hmm. and the mucus removal. And, you know, there's a lot of like, yeah, kind of clinical medical stuff happening in this book. Are you a person who is death obsessed? Like, do you, are you really someone who thinks a lot about death? While writing this book, I certainly was uh, and felt like I had to be in some ways because of some of those characters and, and thematically what the book is invested in. But I also think it's such a philosophical book. Some of that clinical stuff was a way to sort of ground it in some true physical details too, you know, of like death is such an abstract philosophical concept, but also what, what does it look like and feel like on the body so that I don't know, the reader doesn't get just like, I didn't want it to be only a book of ideas. So that was one way to, to make it real. I like the test character. Me too. <laughs> yeah. She's lovely. She's like somebody who's got some courage and some integrity and some sort of like spirit to her mm -hmm. that I found enviable. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, sort of like facing down, like she got dealt a bad hand. She's a young woman. Mm -hmm. She's in her 20s, right? Mm -hmm. And she's dying and she's like, yeah, this is what happens. She's like kind of un unflinching in a way. Yeah, it felt to me like she came to a conclusion that many of the other characters, maybe almost all of the other characters are like really fighting against. And she just sort of comes to some quick acceptance about it and is able to just make the most of her life with the life that she has. I also envy her. Yeah. yeah. We, I mean, as a species, considering how long we've been around, we really haven't done that great of a job of reckoning with death. Mm -hmm. I, th I suppose certain cultures do it better than others, but certainly in American life, it's just yeah. sort of something you don't want to think about. It's not something staring at you from the magazine rack at the newsstand, <laughs> let's put it that way. Unless it's like a celebrity, you know, has died or something. But there's no real, like, deep reckoning with it that I see happening in the culture in any kind of mainstream way. And most people, I think, would just as soon forget about it until it's, like, upon them. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, why Persentis in the book is the way it is. Like, it doesn't stop you from dying. It just stops you from having to, like, see the progression of age on your face in the mirror every day. And it it and just like... to remind, just to remind listeners, Procentus is this drug treatment. Mm -hmm. It's a company called Gene Six, right? Is that right? Genesics is how I say oh, it. Oh, Genesics. Okay, see, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like Gene Six. What? Mm -hmm. What is Gene Six? I was trying to think of what the mm -hmm. sixth gene was, if that's even a thing. Mm -hmm. But Genesics, which is the Siegler's company, mm -hmm. yeah, and they've come up with this pill or this tr or injection or treatment mm -hmm. that you can take that will pause the aging process. Yeah, and it's just kind of a mask. It's just let's not have to let's let's not be forced to see the progression of time anymore. But it is still going on internally, and we are just not confronting or reckoning with it anymore. Yeah, you know, like I'll tell you what this made me think of, and especially since your father is an infectious disease doctor, mm -hmm. is there is a legitimate because here's where I fall. I'll just like put my cards on the table. Like I'm totally in general pro vaccine i have a child with like complicated medical stuff mm -hmm. so like we you know we have to mask like i'm pro mask as a way to protect the most vulnerable 
like, I'm kind of on board. We got vaccinated. I'm fine. You know, everyone's fine. We got our vaccines. I would imagine if your father is an infectious disease doctor that he advocates for such things as well. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And the science, like, you know, I'm kind of one of these people where I'm like, well, if it's super expert scientist with no, like, pattern of nefarious behavior is, like, looking out at me solemnly and saying, like, vaccines will save millions of lives. Like, I'm inclined to believe an expert. Mm-hmm. And yet, the Sacklers exist. <laughs> you know, these pharmaceutical companies are making billions and billions of dollars and have a serious profit motive and put these opiate drugs out into the world that killed one of my best friends. Mm, yeah. I lost a friend to opiate overdose, accidental mm-hmm. opiate overdose. Like, this guy was like a brother to me. So, like, I understand the collateral damage of these sorts of entities and what they do and so there is some gray area you know for people who are like a little bit hesitant to put their full faith into like Novartis I sort of get it like I get it at a in a certain sense and yet like I think Anthony Fauci is a good dude <laughs> you know like I don't think he's like the devil you mm-hmm. know I think he's, uh, you know, not error-free as, you know, no one is error-free. We were in a fluid situation. I've had arguments with this with a, with a friend of mine who's like totally like, he's still angry about it, you know? And it's like, listen, it was a fluid situation. Nobody quite knew how the virus behaved. We were trying to, you know, guard against the worst possible outcomes. And that means that sometimes you're going to be doing things that are unnecessary and, you know, with the benefit of hindsight or whatever. Right. But do you see what I'm getting at? Like there is... And by the way, I can do this with almost anything, but there is some gray area. Mm-hmm. Like when you start to tease this out, like where do you land on all this? Yeah, I always think about the fact that it is so normalized to hear advertisements for like prescription medication, you know, on television it, and on the radio. It, it didn't used to be. I'm old enough to remember when we didn't have those uh, commercials on d- while watching 60 Minutes. <laughs> yeah. You know, like they, the, the, I think the Reagan presidency was when it became legal for pharmaceutical companies to advertise medications on broadcast television. I might have that wrong, but I believe that's when it happened. And it's not a thing that exists in most other countries either. Um, It just feels like distinctly American. Like the business of health, I think, is where things get really broken and the kind of overlap or intersection between capitalism and health, I think, is where things really get broken, where it's like ask your doctor about this thing that you probably don't have and has horrible side effects. Um, like why? Oh, I'm going to sing the Ozempic song to you right now, but I'm, <laughs> I'm actually not. But this is, this is the manifestation. I'm also in Los Angeles mm-hmm. and I feel very leery of it because it's like, okay, we see that, that it can make people skinnier. Fair enough. We really don't have any clue what the long-term side effects are of this. Or even truly, in that case, I think how it works. Right. Like there's all the, yeah, it's very strange. A big thing in the book is, or not not a big thing, but a thing in the book is the marketing and the advertising behind uh, the procedure. And I just, I think it's in Japan where um, they were trying to market depression or antidepressants, but depression wasn't really a, like a thing. And they had to sort of like create this marketing story for like, this is what the experience of depression is. And this is a medication that can cure it. And it's, yeah, that feels very, very different from there is a um, 
dangerous, contagious diseases out there, and we all should get vaccinated against it. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like a cure for something that you didn't even know was a sickness to begin with. Um, Well, yeah, I mean, this is the, I think Chris Rock did a bit about this years ago, where it's like, look, you know, these pharmaceutical companies don't make money if you're well. Mm -hmm. So they do have an incentive to keep you sick because it's just cash flow for them. Like drugs like Prozac that a person Mm -hmm. has to take theoretically for a lifetime on a daily basis are worth billions of dollars to these companies. So this is the tension in myself. Like, you know, there's the part of me that's like, yes, I am pro-expert, I am pro-science. But then I'm also like, and these giant corporations are fucking evil oftentimes. And, you know, how do we resolve this tension? Yeah, I don't even know if it's a, if it's a true tension so much. Like, I think both things can be true and it's more just about American healthcare and, you know, EpiPens, right? EpiPens save lives and yet whoever, you know, buys the patent for the EpiPen can just raise the price of it so that you can't even afford the life-saving injection. It's just- Wait, wait, who did that? Wasn't there that guy in Brooklyn? Martin, was it Martin Shkreli? Is that? Yeah, Shkreli or whatever. It's just the, like Shkreli, the worst yeah. human being, like just the biggest yeah. loser ever. And I think he's in jail yeah. now, isn't he, or something? He, he is, yeah. I think, yeah. It's just a very, you know, broken system where EpiPens aren't just free to those who might need one. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. it also makes me think about, you know, the like the moral lines that scientists face. Like you have good doctors, mostly good doctors, mostly good scientists who are in it for the right reasons. But sometimes these people and their expertise is co-opted for nefarious ends. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think I'm like, now I'm remembering something like Kurt Vonnegut wrote about how, you know, scientists have to be careful that they don't get paid to like, you know, create weapons technology and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like sometimes somebody can be a brilliant scientist and they spend their lives developing things that are incredibly harmful to humanity and possibly even like existentially harmful. Yeah, I feel like that happens kind of all the time, right? Like Nobel, like, yeah, just all these. It's kind of like a tragic story. People who just want to discover knowledge and then bad actors come and take over and turn it into something like truly tragic for the world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what this book's, you know, this book is considering. And I'm interested in the choice to sort of set the novel in a kind of like alternate earth you know these like you said these these locations are fictionalized it's like mark's Mm -hmm. island which i did google i was like is this a place i was trying to like put it on the map and i couldn't and finally Mm -hmm. i figured it out i was like okay she's just making this up but what about that choice yeah i i wanted to create I, i love a book that's set in a world that's like just a shade different from our own and it's not even clear if it's a future or just like an alternate timeline because I just think it gives the writer a lot of room to build. And I love when it feels analogous to the world that we do live in. So the fact that you thought maybe it was real is really I see uh, you. She, she's smiling. She <laughs> smiled when I said that too. Yeah. But I'm also like, um, I don't know where this place, you know, who, and then there's like an island called, uh, I'm going to screw it up, Palm Vera or Palmavia. Palmavia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that also, you know, fictional. I didn't Google mm-hmm. that one, just so you know. I'd figured it out by okay. then. <laughs> yeah, and I think also part of the story is creating this sort of alternate ancient history. And so once that storyline was developing, it was clear, like, this is not 
I, I kind of with all the science in the book, I kind of gave myself the freedom to base it in real things, but then also create something of my own from it that is imagined because it just gave me a lot of a lot of freedom to write the story I wanted and not be constrained by the world we live in and the geography that it has. So the in the novel and and in the real world, I should say, this is what it made me realize or not realize, but made me think of is you know, in the novel there's this algae, this kind of rare algae bloom that is happening off of the coast of Mark's Island. And then there are these red rocks. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, I, I read quickly, so forgive me, but like in terms of the like the anti-aging or the aging pause that happens, it's an outgrowth of like the, the drug is derived from the algae. Mm-hmm. But then, the, then, right. then in the ancient history, there's like the, the boy who's like covered in the red rocks. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it like, you know, <laughs> people can read, but I think the, the point that I'm trying to make is that this book is a reminder that like even the synthetic drugs, well, I, I don't know. I, I shouldn't speak to this cause I don't know it too well, but uh, so many of the medicines that heal us are derived directly from plants and nature. Mm-hmm. Like it's not crazy to think that there could be some magical drug lurking out there in some algae somewhere. I don't think that that's crazy. Yeah, at all. Yeah. But we don't have it. There's no corollary. Like, I mean, did, were you drawing on some actual like pharmacological history or medical history when you created this? No. And this is where Swampscott, Massachusetts, uh, the, the town where I lived after age 11, plays a role because there is this weird algae that like rolls in off the beach, this kind of like beautiful but polluted beach between Lynn and Swampscott. Um, <laughs> and it has this horrible smell and driving home, it's like, you know, you're home because you can smell the the sulfury smell of the beach. Um so that, and sometimes the beach will close because the algae levels and the bacteria that kind of like uh, correlate with the algae get too high. So that was the the real world corollary for this miracle algae of the book. But there are no medicinal properties I know of from. So you weren't like <laughs> you weren't like covering yourself with this as a child in Swampscott. No. no. Yeah. No. And then uh, you know, another thing that just sprang to mind for me that was really kind of like a vivid image in the book is that you know, Maeve, this comatose child who's like, you know, whose aging has paused and who's just in this kind of like sleeping beauty sleep for years, for decades, there are these moths. There's like a miracle involving moths. And it's kind of mm-hmm. gross. It's like, oh, the moths are in the carpet. Like, where did that come from? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think what I, yeah, uh, I guess two things. One is that it was the in in the book there are these neighbors who are kind of coming in and trying to involve themselves in this family tragedy that has happened and just kind of um being kind of nosy neighbors and they won't vacuum under under Maeve's bed because they don't want to draw attention to the fact that she would not be woken up by the vacuum. Okay, okay, cuz like that I that makes a human sense to me. You've got this comatose child. She's in this room. The room obviously needs to be clean if she's going to be there for years. And yet there is something kind of macabre and like deeply sad about like vacuuming next to a comatose child. Like, yeah, good for you on imagining that. <laughs> like, it's such a specific thing, but you know, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So that particular 
miracle if if it is one with the moths feels like very much born of just like the banality of the situation and the like yeah the like just lived experience of dust collecting and you know um and and then moths will will be drawn to it i did happen to have um a real experience of uh moths in, in an apartment in brooklyn which was deeply unpleasant uh, and okay um, now here it is this is what i want this is what yeah, i was thinking must have happened yeah it was it was pretty awful and um was weird we were living in in brooklyn at the time and i feel like the common experience is bed bugs of people having to you know go through and seriously clean every item with fabric in it or whatever but we had this strange much stranger experience with moths where we had to have our apartment fumigated and like cover all the furniture it was it was horrible um the only good thing about it is that i was able to find a use for it in my book um but uh, yeah oh, alchemy taking like an awful situation <laughs> spinning it into literary gold uh that makes sense because it was like such a specific thing mm-hmm. um that i figured it had to be rooted in trauma <laughs> <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, and so now you're up in Rhode Island. You said you were in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. So let's kind of track your career trajectory a little bit, because I want to say I read that this book took you eight years to write. That's true. Yeah. Okay. That's a solid number. Yeah. So, uh, I guess it began, I started it. So I, where to, where to begin? Um, <laughs> how about like you went to graduate school, right? You went to Brown. You, I went to Brown undergrad. And you weren't you weren't writing this book in at Brown. I was not. I was really into short story world at, at that point. My thesis was all short stories. And then I, I taught for two years. I did I, I taught middle school here in Rhode Island actually. And then I, I went to grad school in New York. I went to the new school. And that's where, you know, I kept writing a lot of short stories, reading a lot of them. Um kind of like made my work got much even smaller at the time. That's when I was like, really in like, how small can a story be? How much can you whittle away and still have a narrative? By the way, Um, the market for really, really short, short stories, incredibly lucrative. It's just, yeah, (laughs) it's just raining cash. I know. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's why that's really why I did it. (laughs) Yeah. I know people, it's, it's really sickening. All these people cashing in on the flash fiction market. And then I took a job in, in ed tech. So kind of in a way I was thinking of it as a combination of the teaching that I used to do and the, the creative writing that I love because it was a curriculum development role and there was a lot of creativity in it. Um, and I started writing this book at basically that same time. So I was done with grad school. I no longer had like deadlines or a thesis advisor or like, I feel like I kind of like was losing a little bit of my literary identity and I didn't know how I was going to keep forcing myself to write. And I was, I think a little bit, I was excited about my new job, really loved it, have, have stayed in ed tech all this time, but was a little bit searching for like a way to a project to grasp onto creatively. Um, and that's when I, I tried to write about the 
the girl from my from Worcester, Massachusetts, who had been in a coma all that all those years. And did you have a title? Spent, did you have a title for that project? I didn't, um, but I did do the kind of uh, like write a thousand words every day thing for a while, and like log the words and just watch watch the number grow. And I don't know. I feel like the I was under the impression that at some point I would write a novel if I just kept going like that. Um, at what point do you realize like this thing is not working? Can you take us into that moment? <laughs> yeah, I think I was starting to realize because it was not, it was just an amalgamation of words on a page and it was not really, it was a lot of like memory and a lot of um, like sort of childhood experiences of Worcester. And I was getting really lost in rabbit holes reading like these religious scholarly articles about the true life story of the girl and trying to kind of like find where to sink my teeth into the story. Um, and then I went out for drinks with some people from grad school and one of them, and I, I was like talking a little bit about this project. And one of them mentioned that she was like, oh, I think there already was a book about that. And that's like, I feel like she said that at the exact time where it was just like, just crushed you. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, and I'm not doing this anymore. That's that is that. Um, Did you have a, a strong desire to return to the project each day or was there any dread embedded into the writing? It did feel obligatory for sure. It was like now is the time when I sit down and chip away. And like pile and... another thousand words onto this thing. Yeah. And definitely by the end of each day, I was like, what will there possibly be left for tomorrow to write? Like it felt like wringing out a towel a little bit. Like there's no more drops left okay. anymore. Okay. So there's that experience. Yeah. When you then later get into what eventually became the Museum of Human History, was there a discernible mm -hmm. difference in the if, the experience of the creative process? Definitely. And I think largely because I thought I was writing short stories or I let myself think that for long enough that I didn't get caught up in the, there's so many more words to write uh, feeling. Um, Maybe this is a good trick. It is. I think, I think, I mean, I think it's a really good trick to writing a draft. I think it creates a little bit of a nightmare for revision, but um writing and, and maybe there were easier ways I could have done it with an eye toward revision but writing a novel that you think is a, is a collection of short stories is something I recommend I think okay but when you get before you get there and this other project sort of dies on the vine after your friend just shatters your dream mm -hmm. uh was that difficult like, did you get depressed or, you know what I'm saying? Like when you, when you've been working on something, even if you maybe deep down know it's not right, but you eventually have to abandon all of these words and all of these days at the keyboard. Like, did you have like a dark night of the soul or were you kind of just like on to the next? It was difficult. I won't say it wasn't difficult. I think it also just felt so right that I was a little also happy to be done with it it's like, like i think relief. that friend could have yeah she could have said almost anything to me and i would have been like oh that's it i'm not doing this <laughs> book Just anymore waiting. like i needed any excuse right. um but it still was hard especially because it was my first attempt at something longer um you know i did sink a lot of time into it i think on the bright side of it, it helped me establish a time of day and a, like a writing practice outside of graduate school that at least that part could, you know, the project would change, but the, the routine and the practice could well, what did that look like? stay the same. Um, so at the time we were uh, living in Brooklyn, I was work. my office was also in Brooklyn. I could walk to work and the workday didn't start until 10. 
which was like a great schedule because I could just wake up early and I didn't have a, a kid or a dog or any other responsibilities um, that I do now. Um, but I could wake up early every day and sit at my desk. And I had, you know, we had this small apartment, but it did have room for, for a desk that faced a wall that felt like very, uh, a good place to kind of sit down and focus on, on a project. So I could get, you know, two, three hours a day just sitting at that desk and then run to work. I could, I could walk. And if I ran, <laughs> the commute would be very short. So I could get a good morning of writing in most days and, that became the practice for actually for a few years. Um, for me, you know, so. two, three hours is good. Yeah. You can get a book done that way. You can get a book done an hour a day. I mean, really, if as long as it's a, it's a good hour where you're really focused, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, I think the most, the average person writes well in a day is like four or the most would be four hours. There are people who like can do two, four hour sessions, but I find that like there's diminishing returns past a certain point. I do too. Yeah. So kudos to you. You figured out a system. Yeah. So I had to abandon all those words, but at least I had a system from it. So, um, and that was eight years. I mean, like that was a few years of the eight years that it took to get to publication. I think that it was, it was during the first year, like I quickly began and abandoned this other project. So it it was only a matter of, of months really. I think that I was deeply working on it before it burned itself out a little bit. But the years in Brooklyn where you're working, you know, like running distance from home, how much of, mm-hmm. of this novel did you finish during that time? I finished the, I, so I finished the first draft in 2020 and that failed project was 2015. So it was, it was five years of working on the draft, all of which I was in Brooklyn. Um, it's so funny. Everybody yeah. I'm talking to right now their novel was written or at least partially written during the pandemic. It's just that time. It's just the way that it's working out publication cycle wise. Like almost everyone's like, yeah, this book was written. And what's interesting is how there is this like, this kind of like melancholy energy, Um, the sadness. There's like like a mournful sadness infused into the novel. Do you connect any of that to the experience of the pandemic? Well, I, I mean, I finished it before the pandemic. Well, when when lockdown began was when I thought, let me use this time to finally finish a draft of my novel. So it was mostly written pre-pandemic, but the the fact of being locked in my in our apartment as we all thought we would be for a matter of weeks, you know, at that point was was motivation for me to just be like, well, I can't go anywhere any, anyway. Let me finish this draft and start querying agents, which was a weird, maybe a weird thing to do when we were all locked in our homes. Um, (laughs) But that's, yeah, that's what I did. So I don't know that I can really attribute the melancholy to the pandemic. It's like it's predictive melancholy. Maybe you predicted the pandemic. You knew it it was coming. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. It's hard. It's hard now to say like how much of that was during the revision process, which that all was like, we were really deep into COVID at that point. And I was working on drafts three, four, five, six, seven, on and on of this book. What's it like for the daughter of an infectious disease doctor to have experienced the pandemic? You must have been like on the phone with your dad, like, okay, what's the word? Yeah, I remember, I also am somebody who um, has a lot, you know, I'm an anxious person. And I remember tracking 
this weird pneumonia in Wuhan, China, as they were then calling it in like November of 2019, December of 2019, and talking to my dad about it because it's like, what do you think? You know, what do you think is going to happen? And I remember when the first patient uh, in the U.S., you know, had it, I think it was in Seattle, I want to say. And, you know, that, that phone call with my dad where he said, well, we don't need to worry when it's just one, but any more than one. And then by the next day, there were like five. <laughs> he was like, yeah, now we got to worry now. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. I'm, um, I'm with you. I remember distinctly, it was Christmas. Thanksgiving or it was Christmas, I was texting with my one of my best friends. And he and I, we're usually, when it comes to paranoid things like this, we're usually like, and he, you early know, adopters. we were watching yeah. those YouTube videos of those doctors in Wuhan they're like these chaotic waiting room. I don't know if you remember this, but like people just dropping, like doctors, like walking out of an operating room in like scrubs and just like falling to the ground. And we were like, what the yeah. fuck is going on? And uh, sure enough. So yeah, did it affect the edit? I mean, it must um, have somehow. I mean, yeah, I think it must have. I think it's, it's hard to like parse exactly how, but um I, I mean, there's a lot of loneliness in in the book. There's a lot of lonely characters in the book, and I think the experience of you know she breaks my heart. Yeah, yeah, she's a lonely, a lonely kid. Yeah, um, Maeve's twin sister, yeah. Evangeline. Yeah, I think I I didn't I didn't know that there could be such a experience of like not like being afraid to hug your own parents, and you know my um, my husband's grandmother was alive at the time, and like just so so lonely because she was living on her own and we didn't want to see her to protect her like that is such a sad way yeah to to live a life to protect the people you love by staying away from them um i feel like some of that energy definitely came bled into the the editing of the book no doubt and i can imagine too like you know somebody who's anxious uh like has an anxious temperament which by the way most of us do Mm -hmm. i guess to greater and lesser extents but a book like this feels like knowing that about you feels like you're kind of writing into your fears mm-hmm. in some way, especially, you know, it's like somebody like I just talked with an author on this uh, show who's like 30 years old and is like death obsessed, <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. reckoning with death at like age 28, you know, writing this book. But I get it, you know, like I'm the, I was the same way and I still am the same way, you know, I think it's maybe healthy behavior to try to lean into these things in an effort to understand them and like engage with them to maybe take some of the fear out of it. I think so too. And I think writing into my fears was, was definitely something I was doing here. And it's almost like that feeling of like, you know, when you have a bruise and you can't stop like touching it until finally, like it just stops really hurting that much or something. It's almost like that. Like if I just keep pushing on this, eventually it will lose its hold over me. Um, Yeah. What do you think happens when we die? what a question well we gotta we can this is what i'm talking about human beings need to reckon with this like what is going on i don't think there's a way to know and i think partly that's why we can't reckon like just being okay with not knowing is very difficult and um a difficult thing to accept and kind of goes counter to human nature but um, it is. It's a, fu- it's think, a fucked up situation. Let's say we yeah, are in it. A, is. Like, it is absurd <laughs> yeah. that like the clock runs out or something happens and no idea, but like you're just going to turn to dust. I mean, it's just like, wow. 
That's a lot. I mean, I feel like in defense of humanity, that's a lot to reckon with. To know enough to know that death exists, but not what happens is, yeah, pretty, pretty challenging place to be. Yeah. It was like we lost a bet um, or something. Like, how did we wind up here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? I think scientifically, I wish that there were more progress on this front in terms of understanding it. I think this is why I'm drawn to like these Buddhist monks who are like so good at meditation that they can meditate like through the dying process. Mm-hmm. And they go into death, but then they're somehow revived. You know, they kind of go into death for a few minutes, but then they come back but they had their wits about them so they can like report on what they saw. Mm-hmm. That's as close as I've ever come. I mean, uh, you know, not that I've done like super deep research into all of, the, I mean, I don't think these experiences are all that common, but like that's as close as I think a human being can get to experiencing death and coming back. You would have to really have some, some deep stability of mind to be able to like bear witness to it without maybe freaking out (laughs) yeah i don't like i don't even know if i would want to i don't know like i think i like to i like to aspirationally think i could be the kind of person who is okay with the not knowing because i do think accepting that life has an end and being okay with not knowing exactly what is next makes like the life worth living you know i don't know yeah you know what terrifies me is that uh, this theory that like the state of mind that you are in at the moment of death yeah. is the key to what happens to you after death. That's a lot of pressure. <laughs> like, I don't know if I needed to hear that. Like you got to, like if you're, if you're angry or you're super freaked out, it's not good. You're going to, you know, say it's going to affect your rebirth or whatever happens in the next stage or it's like, oh, geez, you know, you've got to really be poised. <laughs> At every minute, At every... too, yeah. So, yeah. you know, that's a fun one to go to sleep with. That's a fun one to ponder yeah. at like three in the morning, you know, but mm-hmm. I don't know. And it also, the thing that it bums me, it bums me out about it is like, what if some really psychotic nut is just in a state of bliss? At the moment of death. Right. And he somehow gets a better experience than like some sweet grandmother who's just scared like that's i don't like that that's bullshit (laughs) yeah i don't i don't think i like this theory either because not to be too dark but there's so many truly awful ways to die and what you can't be scared if something truly terrifying is happening i don't know yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. exactly so it remains a mystery and uh yeah you know your book honors that and i always uh you know i ask people kind of cruelly if they're working on another book. Like, do you have another short story going that may like metastasize, if I may use that word, <laughs> into a novel? Um, I don't have, I have another another book that I'm working on, but it, this time it's a collection of short stories and truly, well, uh, uh, truly uh, a collection. Maybe, maybe, you never know. Um, you never know. I didn't know this one, but I, I think I'm enjoying, I'm definitely enjoying living in each story uh, and being able to hold a beginning and middle and end in my head for each one um, and then letting it go and moving on to the next, which was not not something I was ever able really to do with this book because it was just such a braided structure that holding it all in my brain was kind of impossible. So um, I think as I like have wrapped up, you know, the the publishing process of this book. It's been nice to sort of complement that with short stories again. Um, how, how do they ha- how do they, they happen for you? 
the, like the short, short stories. Yeah, like, the, like what's the is there a, is there a common thread? Um, I think that in the beginning of, of like the collection I'm working on now, like there was a little bit of the growing one from the next because I at this point I have sort of landed on some thematic uh, commonalities across them, and so it's easier for them to happen. You know, like I know the cohesive elements of the book. And so it's easy to fit in the missing pieces now. Easy. I mean, it's still really hard, but that's that's usually at this point how it's happening is, is seeing what I think the whole is and then figuring out where the missing pieces are. Um, but in the beginning, I don't know. I think it's like things that I'm thinking about or curious about and just um, usually like questions or um, yeah, like sometimes situations like this, this, this book of stories is very clearly connected to the pandemic in some ways. Like it's the, it's a lot about like the absurdity of living our lives as like the world is maybe ending around us. Yeah. So, do you think that the, is the world ending? Like how, like, I think there is this question in people, how apocalyptic is it? Like a friend of mine texted me yeah. like two days ago and it was like about something happening in the Atlantic ocean with the top, you know, the, what do you call it? the temperature of the water, the mm-hmm. flow of the yeah. water. And he was like, the currents. there was some, there was some disaster movie. It's, God, I forget what it's even called. Let's just say it was called like the end of the world. And he texts me like an article in science magazine about how this, you know, Atlantic ocean catastrophe is happening. And he's like, this is what was happening in that movie, the end of the world. And I was like, okay, like, how do you grapple with this stuff? And I think people genuinely have some confusion about, like, is the world ending? <laughs> or are we, like, is are we overreacting? And, like, 5,000 years from now, are people, you know, going to be laughing at us for freaking out so badly? Like, Yeah, a question I have had lately is, like, does every generation think that it could be the last one? Like, does is there kind of this um, feeling of impending doom always and... It's impossible to even compare across, you know, time periods because we only, we only live now. Like, imagine living through a world war, right? Like, maybe you didn't see it on your newsfeed because you didn't have social media, and so maybe that's why it feels especially urgent right now. And you know, everyone is sending images of wildfires popping up literally across the planet. But I don't know. I mean, there's been global calamity for as long as there's been a world, right? Like. I don't know. Like I but I say that as somebody who does really feel like maybe the world is ending and that's that's like how I try to cope with it. Like the sciencey side of you is like wait a minute. Yeah. How do be like I I get this theory that like the the domino effect of like species Yeah. collapsing. Like you know entire populations of fish and algae just dying off, the bleaching of the coral yeah. reefs. Like eventually that's going to come back to bite everyone and everything, right? I mean these these things that these things are in delicate balance and it's yeah. very relational. So it would be in our best interest <laughs> as a species to get a handle on this, but I don't know if we have it in us. You know, climate change, the pandemic, these things that affect all of us, that we all have a vested interest in fixing. It is maybe the most depressing part of it was the way in which we could not come together and still can't come together around like just a positive proactive approach to helping make sure that we're all 
living in a habitable planet or that we're all protected from a potentially deadly disease. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, this... I just had COVID for the first time last week, two weeks ago. Um, How was and it? I had held out. It was really rough. I felt like shit, right? <laughs> was, I felt awful. Yeah. Um, and the part that was so shocking to me after having made it three years without catching COVID and then finally getting it was just there was like, no, I was like, where are the guidelines? What am I supposed to be doing? And Did you take Paxlovid? I didn't. Um, but even just like knowing when I was okay to be unmasked in public or, you know, it's like people say five days because they want you to go back to work maybe and not because you're actually not contagious anymore. And I don't know. It was yeah. shocking. Yeah. You know, but. I just, there's so much resistance to, at this point, people are, have, I guess people are kind of all over the map with it. There's so many people who are like, it's fine. And then there's like an article in the Washington Post just the other day about like, actually yeah, long, co- like long COVID is a real thing and getting COVID, even if you recover from it, yeah, is like still not good for your long-term health and can lead to like serious issues down the, down the road. It's not good to get COVID. Uh, and so, and then I have a child who's like in a higher risk category. And one of the things that angers me so much about humanity is how like healthy people who are not in these high risk categories are so indignant. I'm not wearing a fucking mask. And it's like, Hey, dipshit, it's not for you. Yeah. It's not for you. It's to protect kids like my son or like elderly people, you know, like why can people not wrap their heads around that? It's not about you. Yeah, I don't know. It's yeah. really frustrating, though. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. And it'll be interesting, too, as we get into the fall, just to kind of wrap things up on a cheery note. <laughs> but if this, you know, there's a new variant, as there are, you know, as there will be and, you know, continues to be, I think as the colder weather starts to close in uh, in the northern hemisphere, you know, we get to the winter, these things, I think we're already starting to see it spread. A friend of mine just went down with it. You went down with it. Mm-hmm. It's going around right now, and it's going to probably, there's going to be a wave and will there be public health officials saying, hey, it's a good idea to mask up? I don't think people will do it. And like most people anyway. Yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like it'll be mostly, it just feels like we're all on our own somehow in this, which is really crazy after all this time. But yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to pipe your dad in now. I have him waiting. Yeah. <laughs> Surprise. Right. Yes. Yeah. I didn't, didn't want to tell you until the end, but we, we brought him in to uh, bring us down off the ledge. But it has been a delight to meet you. I'm glad we got to spotlight the Museum of Human History in the book club this month. This is a, you know, this is an impressive debut. It's your debut, right? It is. Yeah. Yeah. Eight years of work and you didn't make it easy on yourself. <laughs> you uh yeah, like you know this is a punishing amount of thought work the amount of intersecting storylines the amount of imaginative work that you have to do to sort of create this parallel world and then the the what the biological circumstances mm. and the pharmacological circumstances that kind of enable the plot to make all that stuff happen on the page without losing the reader, like bringing the reader in and making the world of the story believable. That's hard to do, and you did it well. So kudos to you. Best of luck on the story collection, which may or may not become a 1,000-page novel. Who knows? (laughs) I wish you luck. Thank you so much.
Okay, you guys, there we have it. That was my conversation with Rebecca Bergman. Her debut novel is called The Museum of Human History, available right now wherever books are sold from Tin House. The Museum of Human History is the official August pick of the Other People Book Club. You can find Rebecca Bergman on the internet at RebeccaBergman.com. Follow her on social media, Twitter, Instagram. One more time, the novel is called The Museum of Human History. Go get your copy right away, immediately. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the program on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. If you want to sign up for the Other People Book Club, just go to otherppl.com. Likewise, if you would like to receive my free once-a-week email newsletter, you can sign up at otherppl.com or bradlesty.com. If you want to join the Other People Patreon community and help keep this show going into the future, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you want to do me a quick favor, please rate this podcast wherever you listen. Write a little review if that's an option. It helps the show find new listeners. If you want to get some other people apparel, a t-shirt, a sweatshirt, what have you, you can do that at otherppl.com. Just scroll down, look for the t-shirt. You can't miss it. And finally, if you want to read my latest novel, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. So check it out if you want to. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. All right, so coming up on the show on Wednesday, it's TBD. I've been doing a lot of shows. I got to figure it out. I got to sort it out. Will there be a show? Will there not be a show? There's always a show. I think there's going to be a show, but maybe not. I don't know. I'll leave you in suspense. Tune in. Stay tuned.